Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. I'm coming to you from beautiful Amsterdam here, and I recorded such an amazing show today with Yoni Asia. Yoni is the CEO of eToro, which also happens to be one of our amazing sponsors. And it's really great to have sponsors because of my mission for the show. So we'll hear about that in just a moment. But basically, the episode with Yoni talks about how eToro came um, onto the scene over, over a decade ago. And they weren't just doing anything related to crypto. They developed this whole social investment strategy where all traders and people interested in learning how to trade not not crypto but things like stocks commodities bonds equities can not only trade in a very transparent way with great fees i mean this is a company that's competing with um e-trade ameritrade merrill lynch um they're doing over uh, a trillion dollars in volume and so what their concept was there's a lot of ambiguity around trading um, all different types of assets. And again, this is, this is pre-crypto. And there's all this ambiguity about trading. So they said, let's create a whole in, uh, strategy where we allow customers to talk to each other and follow each other's trades. So if I'm trading and I have a really good portfolio, it allows you to check my, my portfolio, see what the past strategy was, and essentially follow that. And I thought that was really cool. And then in 2012, I saw the CEO of eToro, Yoni, who I interviewed on today's episode, tweeting about Bitcoin. Now, for a, for a CEO of a major company to be tweeting about Bitcoin in 2012 is a huge fucking deal. And so I always kept the company in the back of my mind, and eventually they transitioned into crypto. And so I'm talking to Yoni about that, about how he deals with regulators, about what made him want to trailblaze and be a part of this new economy. I'm, I'm happy to say that eToro has over has millions and millions of traders that are buying and selling crypto on the platform around the world. You think Coinbase was first to the scene? No, they weren't. eToro was first to the scene. This is a fantastic episode. Yoni talks about his life growing up in Israel, studying in college, serving in the military, and what life was like and how he saw the world and the financial crisis in 2008 really, really change how he saw the global economy. Thank you guys. Enjoy the show. I'm so honored that Untold Stories is sponsored by eToro. eToro is the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year. What I really love about eToro is that the CEO has been around the Bitcoin space since 2012, so they really, really put their money where their mouths are. U.S. customers, myself included, we can trade the most popular crypto assets, in fact, almost all of the ones that you want to trade, with low but transparent fees. So you actually know what you're paying for everything. And that's really, really, really important. So if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice building your portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. So you can create this whole portfolio without trading with any real money to see how you'll do. And you can learn all the different ins and outs without using any real money yet. And then once you're comfortable, you can enter the market and start buying and selling crypto for real. Best of all, one of my favorite features 
is that you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders in the world, myself included. And we can talk trading, charts, and all things crypto. So listen, head on over to eToro.com. Links are in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Scott Offord, the creator of Crypto Mining. Scott was my first sponsor for Untold Stories and really called me up and said, Charlie, I love what you're doing. I really want to sponsor your show and further the education. Scott Offord is the super czar of crypto mining. He's a broker of ASIC Mining Gear, helps people buy and sell their miners. So if you want to buy mining tools, if you want to buy miners, if you have any questions on how it works, if you want to sell your miners or even just broker them, Scott is the guy to call. Not only that, but he created a free Bitcoin mining profitability calculator at CryptoMining.Tools. That's the website. And it also has an interactive ASIC hardware comparison chart. What that means is he has all these different fields where you could enter data like, you know, the cost of your miners, the cost of your electricity, and it takes into it takes in things into comparison, like the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having, and it gives you things like what are your how many days until your return on investment? Is it even profitable for you to be mining? All these other type of information, which products to get. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to actually mine for Bitcoin or any of the other altcoins that have mining built in. Give Scott a call, send him a message. You can follow him on Telegram and at Twitter at Offered Scott. That's O F F O R D S C O T T. Of course, the links are in the show notes. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories, can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, Check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Hey, everyone. This is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. You've all heard of the printing press, right? Uh, well, if you, you haven't, then you're living under a rock. But basically, the printing press fundamentally changed how information spread around the world. And we're, we're going back, like I think, like thousands of years ago, Um the Gutenberg printing press was um, invented and actually banned for 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 the first hundred few hundred years. And in fact, if they caught you with a printing press, um, you'd be hung, you'd be burned at the stake. Basically, what the printing press enabled people to do was to take information and mass produce it. Um, and before the printing press was was invented, books and information was only controlled and distributed by the church and by the state. And they were always worked together. So you had basically the King of England and the Church of England and the monks were the only ones who knew how to read and write. So I think in those days, the literacy rate was just insane where like only one or two people out of 10 
actually knew how to read and write. And I, and I actually doubt that even number is accurate. Most people never learned to read and write just because they never needed to. The information came from the church, came from the monks. And you know, those scenes from those old TV shows where you had like monks sitting in these rooms, rewriting the Bible and things like that. And basically information was controlled. And then the printing press came out and all of a sudden you'd have free information. And interestingly enough, the book in history that's been reprinted the most is the Bible. How funny is that? So basically you have the 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 Bible, which was the book that the church was was spreading, was printing. That's that was the book that if they caught a Bible in your house that wasn't printed by the church, rather it was printed by an illegal printing press, you'd be killed, you'd be hung. And it never made any sense to me until I finally understood how information and is so powerful. And now we're living in a world um, where money is power, controlling your your finance and your and, and and your financial world and your money is power. And there's no better person to talk about this than the CEO of eToro, Yoni Asia. Yoni, thank you for so so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, what a great opening, Yoni. I have to say also thank you for 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 sponsoring Untold Stories because this is such an important mission for me, and you're helping me further this goal. So I just want to say thank you. We're very happy to promote Untold Stories to the world. So for those who don't know, eToro is a social investment network, and I actually didn't understand what that term meant, um, and Yoni will will explain it, but. It, it it was a very, I mean, when you think about it, it's so mind-blowing. You almost ask yourself, why did Yoni invent it and why did no one do this before? eToro allows its users to watch the financial trading activity of other users, copy them, and make their own trades. So essentially, um, when you're a user of eToro and you're a good trader, you allow your trades to be uploaded in real time onto the network and... You can allow people to follow your trades. You can trade and follow other people. And it's a whole social network. So it it combines um, finance, but also it combines information. And th- like we talked about earlier, those two are so important. And this was pre-Bitcoin. This was stocks, currencies, commodities. You, you launched this. Yoni, when did you launch this company? So we started eToro in 2007 with a vision of opening the global markets for everyone to trade and invest in a simple and transparent way. I started trading when I was uh, 13, uh, and I was passionate about capital markets. I still remember today my first trade when I clicked a trade through my Israeli bank account, and I actually could see suddenly the trade happening uh, you know, on, on Yahoo Finance, on the blotter of trades, on NASDAQ, I could see suddenly my trade going from my Israeli bank account into Wall Street. And and that sort of, that feeling is exactly the same feeling I had when, uh, you know, I made my first couple of Bitcoin transactions. That feeling that something is moving around the world, uh, you know, from one place to another, through technology, uh, and that made me so passionate about capital markets, uh, which eventually led me to uh, found Toro uh, with vision of opening the global markets for everyone. Because still today, in most places around the world, where you talk to people around investing in stocks uh, or investing in the markets, they think investing in finance in general is complex, 
Uh, it's intimidating. It's boring. Again, taking to your, your great opening, people uh, probably thought that education and information is complex and other people should do it. And people still today think finance is complex and intimidating and, and other people should do it. And when we started building eToro and we focused at first at simplifying just the user interface uh, of accessing the global markets, we realized that people don't need uh, only simplified access. They need also a simplified way of making decisions and consulting with others. And this was just when Facebook and Twitter really started. So social networking was really still at the beginning. And we created a social network where every person in eToro who uh, basically funds their brokerage account with eToro, every trade they do gets published online, uh, and everybody can actually see, follow, and automatically copy top traders from all over the world. So with 11 million users now, we're the largest social trading network in the world where people can really see what other people are doing from all over the world. And in my personal portfolio, which is, by the way, public so people can see it, I'm copying 45 different people on the platform, which means wow. I have a portfolio that the part of it is myself managing it. So you can see I'm holding Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is uh, which are sort of my own trades and Google and Facebook and Apple. But I'm also copying 45 people, which means 45 different people are managing my account and every trade they do gets transacted in a proportionate amount with the same time, the same price in my account when they transact. I'm, I'm just curious. Um, do you, do you remember what your first trades were? I mean, going back to that time when you were, you said that feeling, that adrenaline feeling of when uh, you made your first trades, do you remember like what you were trading? Was it commodities? Was it stocks? No, it was definitely you... stocks. Um, I don't remember the exact first trades. Um, by the way, pro probably, um, I, I do remember uh, I used to look a lot at AMD and Intel, uh, at the spread between AMD and Intel back then, which is why it was so funny for me to see how AMD connected to the crypto industry. Uh, oh, yeah, down the road. That's crazy, became right? became correlated to people just buying uh, the graphic cards uh, to mine uh, Ethereum because th those were a big part of my first trades. Uh, and then I just traded a lot of tech stocks uh, throughout the uh, sort of pre uh, or the dot-com bubble uh, area, pre-crash. Uh, that was the majority of my trading back then. I found a tweet in, you know, uh, I was just randomly, I don't know where it came from, but I found a tweet that you and I were tweeting about Bitcoin going back to 2012. And I want to get to that in, in a second. But, you know, you understood very early on how Bitcoin and how crypto was going to kind of upend and transcend um, the, you know, the global economy in such a fundamental way, the global financial markets. But let's go back to, to, to pre-Bitcoin, to pre-crypto. Um, you mentioned complexity, right? Complexity, but what, what I don't understand, well, I do understand, but complexity is a business model. I mean, that's why you have Raymond James, you have Cumberland Advisors, you have um, Goldman Sachs, you have all these major billion dollar companies that that their business model is the fact that the financial markets are complex. And they almost there. If you look at any sports game on TV, you look at any, you know, TV show, you'll see a commercial for a financial advisor and their commercials have an underlying fear, basically saying 
Financial markets are complicated. And everyone knows what I'm talking about. Financial markets are complicated. Let us do it for you. You basically decided in 2007 to totally change that narrative. Did you get pushback from these large companies? We got a lot of pushback. We, By the way, we still get pushback on, on that specific uh, narrative. So uh, when, I, when new employees join eToro, I do like a crash course uh, in like fintech uh, and capital markets. And I tell them that the business model of money management is still very much based on face-to-face relationship where the basis of that relationship is trust me, I know uh, better what to do with your money. And the other part when you have an entire business that is based on face-to-face relationships is if you think about the, the cost of the business, the underlying cost is, is basically the human capital and the time uh, of people spending time with our customers, which basically means uh, two things. One, you want to minimize as much as possible. So if you're a business, if you're in financial services and your businesses, you have a lot of the thousands of advisors, you actually want to minimize their time with our customers because that's your, your most important sort of cost base is the time of your employees, right? So you want to have as little engagement as possible with the customers. And it's completely opposite though. It's the complete opposite from what an internet company would want, right? An internet company like eToro would, I, I want our customers to engage with our product every day, to log in every day, to look at their portfolio, to ask questions. But, but with a traditional financial services company, they usually want to do the opposite. And how do you create that opposite? You want to tell them that they don't necessarily need to check up frequently. They they don't necessarily need to understand what you're doing, right? Um, And the second part is you really, and again, nobody would would generally openly admit this, but, but as you've suggested before, you want to create that gap that you know what to do significantly better than your customer, which I, I don't think is necessarily always the case, especially today with the vast amounts of information out there. I, I think a lot of Toro's customer know more about specific markets significantly more than we do. And look at, Look at the analogy I just told you. Information is power. And and like you just said, that when they control the information or basically convince you that they have better information or better understanding that, then you give them your power. Exactly. And I, and I think nobody necessarily, the status quo is works very well for, the, for those in power today. And, and I think nobody's going to, give that up very quickly. But I do think that there is a new generation now that have different user expectations. Uh, there's a there's two very, very big transformations happening. One is a generational transformation of wealth. So the Gen Y is going to get about $1 trillion a year, get richer by $1 trillion a year 
in the next 20 to 30 years. That, that's, a, that's a magnificent number. Can you say that again? One trillion dollars a year are trickling down from older generations to newer generations. And that's roughly how gener- the, the amount of wealth being accumulated by Generation Y every year from now for the next 20 years. Again, these are very big numbers, so very rough numbers. But Gen Y is supposed to become the richest, uh, wealthiest generation uh, or cohort of people on the planet within the next uh, 10 years. And I think our expectations of how to access the markets, what is a product, um, you know, we expect things to be a mobile app, uh, not, a, a, not a spreadsheet on a PDF. When you talk to traditional f- finance people and, and they tell you they have a product for you, they send you a PDF and they say, here, this is the product. You know, it's a definition of, <laughs> of a structure or a fund um, where when we say product, we mean an app, uh, whether it's the social trading app of eToro or the wallet app. It's, it's all around the user experience and the features of, of a specific uh, experience. It's insane that you say that. And, and so there's a huge generational transformation of wealth. And that transformation will also include, to a very large extent, technology. Now, in parallel, I've been dealing with trading technology since I was uh, about 19. Um, and... I realized relatively early on when we've built eToro how broken the system is. And, and you really need to, de- to be in the computer sciences world of financial services to understand how broken things are uh, and understand what is T plus one and T plus two and why do things take two days for uh, things to settle, basically for a simple movement of U.S. dollars from one country to another takes two I'm days. still waiting for an ACH transfer from last week. By the way, and if you think about things that aren't that complex, like moving your stocks from one broker to another, that potentially could take two weeks. Now, if you think about moving foreign stocks, you know, if you'd add Japanese stocks to move them from one broker to another, potentially impossible. So financial assets in general are today non-transferable or it's very hard to to transfer them through technology. Um, Some financial assets, by the way, are almost not transferable. And that is because the underlying technology is is really broken. Uh, And it's going to take a long time to fix that infrastructure. And I have zero doubt that blockchain technology is a paradigm shift in how fintech solutions will be built and will be utilized and, and that we'll see the great re- greatest transformation of wealth uh, moving into blockchain assets over the next 10 to 20 years. Now, tell me about that, because I've said Bitcoin is probably the, one of the largest socioeconomic experiment the world has ever seen. And I've, I've read that you said somewhere that this is a social revolution. So let's talk about that word because that implies human beings. Tell me about that. So f- first of all, we need to remember uh, that finance is social interaction, right? Money is social interaction. It's just a very efficient form of human communication, which basically answers very quickly 
how much do you think this is worth and how much are you willing to pay for it? Um, but if you think about a lot of uh, sort of different processes, uh, if they're simplified into something as simple as, as one number, they become super efficient. And that is mon money markets and eventually capital markets, a super way, super efficient way to communicate value. And because of that, to transact with value. But the underlying technology is, is, is compared to what we understand is possible today is broken. And that is the very simple feature, which, which I think is the biggest revolution eventually of Bitcoin and what got my eyes to sort of uh, open up is two very simple features. One is you can hold the asset, so any entity can hold the asset, so you can be your own bank or custody. Um, and second is, by definition, it has a feature that it is a transferable to anyone else with a wallet, and that always works 24-7. And of the $140 trillion of assets in the world right now, I would say a very small amount of financial assets actually have those two features, which enable me to say, hey, I want to hold my own stock or gold or mortgage or bond. I want to hold it on my own without a financial inter uh, intermediary, right? So if, if you'd go to your broker and you'd tell them, listen, I own some Apple stock with you, please send me the share certificate. I want to keep it in my safe. They wouldn't really know how to handle it anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. They don't even know what that is. And, and the second, so, so being able to tell your financial intermediary, I want to hold it on my own and that I want the ability to transfer it to whomever I choose. Those are technical features that, in my opinion, will become standard in every single financial asset in the future. Now, it might take time. There might be regulatory uh, sort of obligations around it, but that is the digitization of capital markets, of the financial markets. Uh, and I think we're really at the beginning of this process, very similar to how in 9899, when I traded stocks for, for the first time uh, around the dot-com bubble, I looked at the internet and, and I said, that's eventually how information is going to flow. Everything is going to move to the internet. We'll be able to communicate with everybody all around the world. And of course, there were a lot of naysayers saying, you know, everything is going to stay the same. Uh, and, you know, the same media companies uh, will, will control the world. And, and, and eventually it took around 15 to 20 years from the dot-com bubble burst to the internet to become what it is today. eToro is crypto trading made easy. It's one of the largest and smartest trading platforms in the world with extraordinarily low and transparent fees. Join myself and 11 million other traders and create an account at eToro.com. Links in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. 
As a mining equipment broker, Scott Offord wants to make sure his clients are well-informed and making data-backed business decisions. Scott created the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI for miners. It's a better way to compare the efficiency of various models of ASIC miners and to see how the price of the miner and the efficiency impacts your mining profitability. So check it out at CryptoMining.Tools and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. You, you mentioned Generation Y earlier and a trillion dollars are trickling down. Are, are young people investing? Like what, what type of demographics do you see with, with eToro? And are you seeing like a shift from investing in, in stocks to now more people are are, are buying and selling and trading cryptocurrencies? So first of all, yes, there, we see a lot of uh, uh, younger people trading on eToro. The average age on eToro is about 37. Um, if uh, you compare that to some of the more traditional uh, brokerages or investment houses, that's 20 to 30 years younger than their average age. And uh, so definitely see younger generations coming in. We also uh, see a very, so we have, I think, a lot of people on eToro um, that came to eToro to trade crypto actually answered in a survey that this was the first time uh, they've ever traded online. Really? Then have continued to trade stocks on eToro. Uh, and I think the former CFTC chairman, uh, you know, said uh, something very similar. He said, we're seeing new generations who are interested in this new type of asset class, which I believe is, again, a generational asset class. Um, and that we need to make sure uh, that uh, uh, we enable uh, innovation uh, to create access to those assets. It's so insane, not insane, but it's so uh, enlightening to hear, you know, your, your, that information, because I think I heard a, a radio program a few weeks ago saying that people are worried that the stock market is drying up, that people, that younger people are just not interested in trading stocks. And actually the, 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 the news article didn't even mention, uh, the news program didn't even mention cryptocurrency. It was just a Hey, like the, the volume over time of the stock market is just declining because, you know, they the younger generations just aren't interested in in, in trading. They don't really under, understand it. Do you, I guess so you don't see that. I, I don't see, see that. And when we look, but again, obviously, I, I live in my own eco chamber surrounded well, by, it's heartwarming. by our I'm users. Um, but when you look at the portfolios of a lot of our users, uh, you'll find something super interesting. Uh you'll see that they're investing in stocks that you would be familiar with, you know, 90% of the stocks that they're investing in. Uh, so it, it is about they're investing in, in not in companies, they're investing in products that they use, right? When ah. you invest in McDonald's, Fucking love McDonald's. Uh, or Coca-Cola or Starbucks or Apple or Google or Tesla – um, you, you you don't necessarily invest in a companies and its financials only. You invest in a theme that you invest in what you believe in. You invest in a company you believe in. You invest in a product that you consume. Um, and and when we ask our users around it, they have an understanding of the company's financials. Uh, some of them even join investor calls, the quarterly earnings calls, uh, which is super interesting because you suddenly see more people joining investor calls. 
Um, but but really, their first pick of, of the companies that they want to invest in are companies who the, the product is they understand okay, so- their product. Satoshi came out with the white paper in 2009. You had the you know the first the first version of Bitcoin 2009, um, and that was at the you know the heels of the financial crisis. In fact, I think the worst two years of the financial crisis here was 2010 2011. You launched in 2007, so you were still a very young company. We've been talking very macro. Bring me down to like, you know, what did it look like? in 2008, 2009, 2010, you have a very keen insight that I don't have and most of us don't have. Take me down to like a very specific, tell me some stories of like how, what things were, things that were happening in those like two, three years. So uh, I think it's interesting is to understand really what happened in 2008 uh, without going to the to the entire explanation of, of exactly why it happened and probably going to happen again. When shit hit the fan, you, th- that's where, you know, you could clearly see back then from my seat as a founder and CEO of a financial services company that something is broken because the systems, the the trading sort of, halted right think about uh i think there's a a good scene probably from the matrix and x-men and some others where you know you're standing and everything pauses and and you suddenly you know everything freezes the cars freeze every you know everybody freezes in their motion when lehman brothers and, and burr stearns defaulted a lot of the financial services systems stopped working and, and 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 the way that you know when you what does that think mean? about yeah. what that means since then i've seen that happening several times uh whether it's you know i've seen that happening with a swiss franc devaluation we've seen that happening uh with a cyprus bailout what that means is that you as a by the way not necessarily consumers but a lot of times this is hidden from consumers so you as a financial institution try to access funds and, 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 the, and you know, the banks basically tell you, listen, you, you can't right now access those funds. Um, or, or you have a trade uh, and you want to sell that trade and they tell you you can't really sell that trade. There is, the market doesn't exist anymore right now. Please wait till markets reopen, right? So suddenly... All of the assets freeze. They're non-transferable. They're non-sellable. The markets just freeze. And, and that doesn't happen a lot, but when that happens, it's a very, very, very scary moment. And the moments before that, people start panicking to the point. So people who understand money understand that their money in the bank doesn't really exist. And that if their bank defaults, there is a very... Good question. Uh, Yoni, I don't think the world understands so, that, though. I really don't think majority of people really understand that concept. So, so I can try and explain it, but it's it's uh, it's not that difficult. So traditional financial services, a bank, you deposit a million dollars into a bank, um, and basically 
the bank can then take your million dollars and then lend them to someone else, right? So that someone else now has your million dollars. All you have is an IOU from the bank that they owe you a million dollars. So you log in from the computer, you'll see that the, you have a million dollars there, but they actually lent the million dollars to someone else. Now, that's a very simplification, uh, uh, you know, simplified view because obviously the whole process of regulation is around how do how does the government or regulators make sure the bank can actually pay you back the money that they owe you so when you want to withdraw the funds, they have enough resources to actually give you back the money. So there's a lot of co complexity around how that functions. But generally, when you see your numbers in a bank, it's basically, you know, they owe you money. It's not that they keep that money reserved in a safe somewhere. So when, if there is a risk of your bank going bankrupt, that means there is a risk of you not seeing your money back because they owe you something, but if they went bankrupt, they won't be able to pay, for, to pay it. So what happens near financial crises is uh, people need to start distributing their money across many, 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 many banks, right? Because you say, okay, I don't know what, who is going to default and when, but you understand that defaults are coming. So people who had money in Lehman Brothers and, and, and Lehman sort of went bankrupt, lost their money, right? So when, when a bank, when a financial institution defaults, in theory, it should have sufficient amounts of money to pay back their customers. In practice, in a lot of cases, that, that's not the case. And, and when you are within the industry and you start seeing how that works, people start... You know, in 2008 was the first time I, I realized that if there is a big financial crisis at the size where financial institutions start going bankrupt, the most important thing you need to do is take your money and distribute it in as many uh, banks that are high rated and start understanding their rating and sort of what's their risk. Because you have no ability to tell them, okay, I have $5 million, please send it to me in a suitcase in cash and I'll keep it in There was a, a movie where that happened. Do you remember? It was a recent movie. I forget which one it was. And um, there was the... The, the big short is a good example. Is that when that. he showed up to the bank and he said, I need like $2 million in cash? Oh, no. So there's a movie recently and he showed up to the bank and he's like, he's like, listen, I need $2 million in cash. And like he had plenty in his, in his, uh, in his account and everyone was trying to talk him out of it. And they're like, we can't do it. And he's like, what do you mean? You can't do it. It's my money. And he's like, you have a week to get it. And it was like a whole argument, a fight. They they thought he was being scammed. They had the FBI there to like someone holding a gun to your head. Like they couldn't fathom the concept that this guy would want two million dollars in cash. And he did to prove a point. And so that was uh, like, you know, you try to. Yeah, I forget which movie it was. I'm going to look it up after the show. Um, so then Bitcoin um, came out. And so and, and I think, by the way. Which leads me to, to Bitcoin and, and what I think is a possible scenario, um, which is potentially the biggest bank run in history. So a bank run is when people come into the bank and say, OK, I, I want to withdraw my money. 
at some point, the bank doesn't have enough money to give. So, so the by definition, this is how bank works. They don't have all of the money uh, uh, that they owe all of the customers, right? Because some of it is in outstanding loans. So if everybody goes to their bank and say, hey, I, you know, I want to withdraw my money because I want to buy Bitcoin, and, and that becomes a phenomena, as a phenomena, this might actually lead to bank runs and to banks defaulting. And that is the biggest fear uh, for sort of the system stability around crypto is that it actually has a potential impact of uh, creating a real bank run uh, and, and to actually create real sort of destruction to how existing financial services work. It's a it's a real fear. Um, you know, um, the concept of a bank run. So there's a movie um, that I think every youngster in in the this country in the Western world probably has seen it's I, it's a Christmas movie and I come every Christmas. Like it's on TV all over too. I think it's called life is beautiful or Wayne, what's that movie called? Is it life is life is beautiful. Um, and it's basically about like a, a, a guy who owned a bank and there was a bank run. It was about the great depression. So the concept of a bank run, I think every American, uh, every probably global citizen knows about, what a bank run is, but the, the, the concept of it actually happening again is unfathomable. Like I don't believe it and no one really believes it because it's such a scary thought that it can actually happen. Oh, it's a wonderful life. Not life is beautiful. Sorry. Um, so, so Bitcoin c- comes out in, in, in 2000 Satoshi, you know, launches a concept of Bitcoin at the heels of this crazy, uh, financial crisis. And you, you really, you started publicly tweeting about it from what I see in 2012, Maybe it was earlier. That was very early. That was like maybe a few hundred people had known about Bitcoin back then. How did you hear about it? Um, what did you think about it? And have your thoughts kind of changed? So I started as the years writing about digital currencies in 2008. Um, as the financial crisis sort of was happening, I realized so- something is really broken in how the system works. And I, I wrote the visible hand. Uh, a blog post called the Visible Hand, which actually now relates to to a to a product that we're we're launching or a project, a nonprofit project called the Good Dollar. And in that blog blog post in 2008, I said that there's a need for a transparent and open money system. So when one person sends another person or one company sends another company uh, a transaction, uh, all of those transactions should be public and by being public that means that one the system will work more efficiently uh, because everything everyone will see all of the transactions uh, and second it will make money good because people won't be able to use money for bad things if everything is public um, and and the second part which we can tackle later is back in 2008, uh, I also assumed that interest rates are going to get lower and lower uh, and that therefore eventually become negative, but that the current financial services infrastructure really doesn't support the ability of interest rates going negative. 
Uh, and a part of that, uh, what I described is that the more money you have, in theory, you should have higher negative interest rate or the less money you have, you should actually get more interest rate or more positive interest rate. So a personalization of interest rate, which later on, by the way, from a thought process, I realized or we realized in our research is something very similar to what's called UBI or universal basic income is sort of what led me to realize that there is a need for a, a blockchain back then, blockchain-based money. And this was pre-Satoshi, pre-Bitcoin. And, and there were a few people that I used to send information around this, uh, including my brother. Uh, and then when uh, Bitcoin sort of starting to emerge, actually in 2010, I started looking at Bitcoin. Uh, this was sort of, I was, wow, this is exactly how I envisioned this. This is exactly uh, how money should work. Uh, and I immediately fell in love in the in the concept of Bitcoin. So, what did you do next? I mean, did you did you study it? Did you did you like think about it? I mean, you started writing about so it. So we started uh, actually about uh, it. internally in Etoro, uh, sort of figuring out how do we uh, you know how do we operate with this. So we set up a node. Uh, uh, we started mining a bit. Um, we. Uh, started trading with Mount Gox back then. So we started buying Bitcoin for like $2, $5. Um, My favorite company. And uh, we started experimenting with the technology. Then in 2012, and again, I still really believed and still truly believe that you need to change more uh, in Bitcoin or, or in sort of digital currencies for them to really create positive social impact. So I'm, I'm really concerned about the social impact of crypto as it is today. So why are you concerned? Because I, I think the inequality, that generally inequality is one of the biggest problems in the world, that we in uh, theory live in a world of abundance where everybody in the world can actually enjoy uh, sort of, you know, the basics of food, electricity, uh, maybe today also I internet and water, uh, but that wealth distribution uh, and how basically uh, there are over 2 billion people who are on the bank. People in the world own more than the poorest 50%. So the poorest three and a half billion people in the world. And, and that eventually leads to... to Thing. So I, I do very much believe in free markets. I very much believe in capitalism, but I just think that the system doesn't work well. Uh, and because of that, inequality constantly increases. And if you look at crypto, I think inequality is even worse than uh, the traditional financial system. Uh, so and, and that's a problem because you would want to use new technology uh, or smart money to actually solve that problem or improve the ratio of inequality. And that that's, again, that's our research around the good dollar is how do you create money uh, that by definition uh, creates more, a more equal ecosystem. How do you solve that problem though? Like 
inequality in crypto or inequality in the world how do you, how do you solve that problem how do we even start it's a, it's so so again from a mathematical point of view i believe the solution is actually very simple um uh and, and that's what we've been researching in the good dollar project so uh, you know you you'll get this very quickly cuz you know you you're you're in crypto and blockchain so think about uh, uh cryptocurrency right that, that's the whole concept around the good dollar which also has a unique identity connected to it so a single identity can only have one wallet um and basically think about uh, a formula that whenever you want you can claim one good dollar a day right so you can basically mine you have your identity you have charlie or a number that represents charlie um and every single person can mine one good dollar a day um so two things that happen that are interesting first of all people who would log in and mine their one good dollar a day are people who feel the need to do it right so if one good let's say one good dollar uh, is is worth uh 1 cent or 5 cents most people won't necessarily log in and do the process of mining or claiming uh if they don't need it but people who need it will actually do that process so that's a natural selection to how many people actually claim it now if you think about sort of okay there's a billion people each of them can claim 1 good dollar a day how does that look from an inflation point of view eventually it actually gets to 10% or less yearly inflation so the only thing you did is is instead of managing inflation the way it is today uh or in managing it through interest rates and again the problem with interest rates is it manifests the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because the ones who are able to get high level of interest rates with very low costs compared to the interest rates are those that have a lot of money aggregated um and and the rest usually the first part usually have actually loans which means the interest rates are actually costing their money and not the opposite so if you replace interest rate and inflation with a mechanism that basically gives 1 good dollar a day for everyone you're creating something that is actually creates uh equality so constantly i don't know if you know what a gini coefficient is no so a gini coefficient is as a way to measure inequality um and there's a lot of efforts to try and improve the gini coefficient around the world and those efforts are, are, are a bit futile because there aren't they're not capable of really moving the needle but if and that's what we've done in our research we're going to publish some of that research uh, uh uh very shortly if you create an ecosystem where every person can claim 1 good dollar a day you you constantly improve the gini coefficient in rates that would take maybe you know traditional finance in the world 50 years would happen in a year but how do you create value for the gini for the for the good dollar so that, that's that is that is the project research so so we're building the app we're building the cryptocurrency uh and we call it the good dollar experiment the big question is how do you hack value into the good dollar what is the value of the good dollar right so if you think about this from a macro perspective what is the value of bitcoin 
we know today it's $10,000 because people are willing to buy and sell it for $10,000. But I think my first tweet on Bitcoin was when it was 26 cents. Uh, and uh, what is the and I, and I went through this process for the past nine years when people talk to me about Bitcoin. It was like, how much is it worth? Why are you buying it? It's worth nothing. It has no intrinsic value right now. People understand it is worth $10,000 today. It might be worth $3,000 tomorrow or $30,000 tomorrow, but people understand that it has value and that value is measured by market forces. How much are people willing to pay uh, uh, to buy it or uh, to sell it for? And the same goes for any cryptocurrency as an example, the good dollar. And the concept around the good dollar and what we're trying to convey is if we can create a better world, a more equal world, through basically inventing money that has a better wealth distribution into it, a smarter wealth distribution into it, uh, and still works in potentially a very capitalist free markets approach, right? You can either have good dollars or not have good dollars. Whoever is willing to sell things for good dollars is actually doing good. So if you're willing to uh, sell ads on your podcast for good dollars, you're actually promoting good dollars because you're creating value. I see your point. The minute you're willing to sell something for the good dollars. So there are people now who have good dollars in their wallets because they can claim every day. All you need now is people who are willing to sell goods and services for good dollars. And every person who does that is doing good. Do you think that doing good is enough of a uh, incentive for people to accept good dollars over another currency? You know, because we human being. I, I think it's really about. So, so first of all, you know, and, and this is why we call it the good dollar experiment. So I'm not here. Shil- shil- this is truly a nonprofit project. There's no ICO. No, I love this because uh, it's, it's, it's really it's really about proving a point. Um, and sort of potentially maybe inspiring future projects to understand that point. And the point is, you can do good and make money. And I believe that doing good and making money at the same time is a better way of making money. And that the more people who want to make money and people who make money, basically, you know, if money runs the world, then people who make money are, are making the world run. If all of them would say, We're do, we want to also do good by making money uh, and, and, and therefore use good dollars, then I think, yes, we, we have an opportunity to, to truly change something, maybe in a small scale, maybe in a large scale. Um, but, but I think it's super important. I think, by the way, when you talk to uh, very wealthy individuals, they already understand that they have a responsibility to give back. Uh, I think that's a very, very interesting and great trend happening. Uh, I think Founder Pledge is a great example of that. Um, uh, and, you know, you see people like, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or whether it's Warren Buffett or in Bill Gates around that, uh, that you understand that, um, you know, very wealthy individuals want to give back and want to um, you know create positive social impact i don't think there is a good enough sort of funnel 
for that. And I think that creating a new version of money, which is better, potentially create that construct, right? So what if you could create a construct, the good dollar, where people could actually, you know, donate a billion regular dollars, transform them into 10 billion of good dollars, buy it, uh, it has more value. I'm a big fan of this because um, if anything, I'm a I'm a student of socioeconomics. It's what I studied in college. It's what I've always done. So, um, you know, the concept of you having a, basically a, a research and development center and a nonprofit studying, you know, how to increase equality around the world and then you doing it with a very uh, novel approach. I love it. And I and I'd love to be a part of it somehow. It, it's so it's so intriguing. Um, and so thank you for telling us about it. And I know that, you know, because Wayne is looking up Gini coefficient right now, a lot of a lot of our listeners are going to be looking up all these different terms and concepts that you've that you've taught us. Um, so but by the way, you're more than well, it's an alpha, the alpha already is working, you can go to the website, gooddollar.org. You can read there a lot of information We're trying to publish everything, by the way, is open source in GitHub, all the code, and, and we're trying to publish as much as we can our research on it. And again, this is something I've been passionate about for the past 11 years. I started writing about it in 2008. And then when the crypto rally happened in 2017, I said, you know, if, if before the crypto rally happened, I said, you know, I, I can't talk to this uh, about this with anyone because everybody sort of assumes I'm crazy if I'm talking about creating <laughs> a, new type, a new type of money. Um, then when, after the crypto rally happened, people were suddenly opening to to hear about it and to think about it. Like the level of acceptance that there is to such concepts today are probably a thousand times higher than they were two years ago. And that alone, for me, is worth the entire sort of crypto hype and the entire, you know, Ethereum ERC-20 utility tokens uh, expansion back in 2017 it enables people to think around new constructs of money, around new new utilities of money and tokens, whether it's, you know, it worked or not, or whether there's real proof or not, you know, proof is still in the pudding, I guess. Um, but it d- does enable people to understand that there's something coming and that there's an opportunity to really transform what money is. Uh, and again, you're very, very happy for you to join uh, uh, the the alpha users now with uh, 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 with the alpha of Good Dollar. Thank you, and that's it's so. Uh, I, I just we're on your website right now, GoodDollar.org, and you have a quote: "The forty-two richest people on the earth have more wealth than the poorest three point seven billion." That is just a staggering number. And I'll tell you something that I met some of those forty-two people. And a lot of them would want to change that. They they are so so they actually do want to give back and they want to improve the lives of the 3.7 billion. There there is simply the technology or construct or concept isn't there to make something scalable. Do you think that crypto, you know, like five or ten years from now, will have more of these? Um, branched off socioeconomic experiment coin tokens type type Definitely. type of things. Or, okay. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm uh, again. I'm. I think 
money is changing form. Um, I think, you know, there's a big, uh, I think there's now a struggle between four very powerful forces. Um, What are those forces? And and those forces are, uh, let's call them the keepers of the status quo, who are governments and regulators um, who have currently the monopoly of printing money. And that's a monopoly that you generally, you know, you don't give away so easily. Um, Referring back to your opening, I do believe that we are uh, at a time where the separation of state and money is very similar to the separation of state and religion, uh, which is exactly what you talked about, right? So uh, I come from Israel, born and raised in Israel, um, and and the separation of state and religion is still an issue being discussed. Uh, Here in the US, there is a clear separation of state and religion. A separation of state and money is is a very, very big uh, sort of social revolution on what is the purpose of, of state in our lives. So government control over the monopoly of, of printing money and, and sort of monetary policy, that's one big force uh, with, with, by the way, its power mostly through regulation. The second one is... Uh, the keepers of money, uh, banks. So, uh, and by the way, th- th- those are the keepers of the status quo, sort of regulators and banks. Banks have gotten from regulators uh, the license mm-hmm. to um, basically keep money for people and to digitize money, right? So the, the government, in theory, prints it, but the keepers of money are institutions who are regulated by the government, and the big ones are, are very powerful institutions all around the world, and they wouldn't want to have that go away. And on more than that, by the way, and I'm sure that's what they're whispering in the ears of regulators, if they lose their ability to keep the money, then they also lose their ability to lend money. So, so again, leading us to the bank run issue, if everybody would transform, would suddenly move their assets from the banks uh, to whether it's, by the way, Bitcoin, good dollars or, you know, just their own safe, then the banks wouldn't be able to give any more loans to businesses and then businesses wouldn't be able to finance themselves. Uh, and, and that's why banks would tell the regulators, you have to protect us from this new technologies to make sure we can stay the keepers of money so we can give loans to small businesses. Who should be the keepers of money then? Because you have Facebook and the Libra organization right. believe and, they and should which be. Le- which leads me to the, you know, to the two other forces. One is, as you mentioned, the Facebooks, the Libras, uh, or, 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 and these are the, let's call them the tech giants, whether it's WeChat in China or Facebook uh, from the U.S., um, or, or many others coming. I'm sure we'll see a coin coming from Amazon as well. Toro is going to be a tech giant. Tech companies or fintech companies obviously want to take a, a part, a lucrative part of banks' businesses. Uh, and, and we do want to change the status quo because when the status quo changes, uh, then, then money flows. Uh, and, and again, Toro's first year of operation was 2008. Uh, this was the the financial crisis. In the midst of the financial crisis, we launched the platform and had uh, 
actually a very, very good year because people were afraid of what's happening in the markets. So, so they want, looked for alternatives of what to trade and where to invest. And then the four-fourth is an, an interesting one. We somewhat were in the middle between sort of the tech companies or tech giants and uh, the, the crypto community or cyberpunks or crypto hackers. Uh, so the cyberpunk movement is a very, very libertarian community that believes in open source, that doesn't believe in sort of, uh, you know, for-profit. A lot of the crypto community really don't like what Facebook are doing with Libra and, and wouldn't want that to succeed, right? So, so there's a very big difference. By the way, and regulators don't, regulators' job is, is to protect consumers. It's, it's not to keep the status quo for banks. So there's a lot of tension also between regulators and banks. Uh, and so these four forces are all now in motion to see who eventually controls or will control uh, the future of money. I think that the Libra, I was, I'm still very against Libra, but I think that the whole Libra thing is a good distraction for regular. So, you know, that quote, I think it was Gandhi who said it, that first they, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you and then you win. It's so funny how for like 10 years, the government, you know, dismissed Bitcoin, still does, the governments around the world. Some of them do certain things, but then Libra doesn't even launch, but it just gets announced. But it's seen as such a threat to, to the world order that they're doing, you know, hearings and Senate hearings and the global world governments or Trump and everyone is just immediately coming down on it because they see it as a threat. But they still ignore Bitcoin, you know, not even comparison to to uh, to Libra. So I guess now I'm like, you know what, let them go and fight Libra because Bitcoin is and crypto is the real threat. Right. But, but by the way, uh, you sh we should the crypto community should be concerned by, by the ability of government to uh, slow down uh, the adoption of crypto as a mass as a mass market through through regulation. I think crypto community underestimates the big government's abilities to do it. Um, smaller ones might not be able to do it because, again, the peer-to-peer -peer nature of Bitcoin says that you can always buy Bitcoin from someone on the street for cash. But what if? But what when cash disappears and it is on the path of disappearing? There is a big war on cash right now. So there is a big war on cash. And if you think that cash, you know, and that war will be won by governments, and all your money will suddenly be digital money controlled by either banks or tech companies, then they're able to really halt the process of Bitcoin. Um, by the way, Israel is a very you know good and bad example for that. There's a very big blockchain community in Israel, a lot of crypto companies in Israel, but consumers are, are, are stuck because banks simply do not enable anyone to transfer or receive dollars from crypto companies overseas. So if, if you are an Israeli, you receive Bitcoin, you put it in Kraken, and you convert it to dollars, and you send it to your bank, the bank in Israel would block that transaction. You will not be able to get that money into an Israeli bank, period. So how... How do people buy and sell Bitcoin in Israel then? They, they, they generally, 
through one or two specific companies who are the only ones who have bank accounts. Uh, and the reason is because they went through a process of suing the banks and winning in Supreme Court. So they forced the bank to keep their account open. So there are many, by the way, lawsuits of consumers now against uh, uh, against the banks around this. Um, and other than that, it is uh, practically impossible. And, and of course, through eToro. Wow. Yoni, how can people start trading on eToro? How, how can someone who's who's nervous about trading anything, whether it's crypto or commodities or stocks, how can they get started on eToro? Is it is it difficult or is it easy? It's, su- it's super simple. We just launched eToro in the U.S. Uh, so across the globe, we offer uh, people from 100 countries to trade stocks, equities, markets, commodities, indices, and crypto. Here in the U.S., we just started four months ago. We started first by offering our crypto trading platform. Uh, you just go to eToro.com. Within five minutes, you can open an account and fund your account uh, through ACH, and we'll add debit cards very soon. Um, so you can open an account and fund an account, and within five minutes, basically, start uh, trading 15 cryptocurrencies. I know your time is is so valuable, so I just want to say thank you again for, for taking the time. You, you, you basically live and work out of two different continents. You're all over. Um, thank you again for that, and thank you for, for sponsoring this show. It really means so much to me, and I, and I can't wait um, to release this episode. Thank you very much, Charlie. It's been awesome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Scott Offord, the creator of Crypto Mining. Scott's a broker of ASIC mining gear and helps people buy and sell their miners. He created a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator and an interactive ASIC hardware comparison chart that you can find at CryptoMining.Tools. It's the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI. That includes the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having. The calculator lets you put in your estimated uptime to give you a more realistic profit projections. So check it out and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.